This morning I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 14. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun, under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. Let's pray this morning. Our God, as we approach your word, I pray that we would do so with humility, that we would receive it as it is, the very word of yours, the word of God, which bears marks of your character. It is without error. It has authority. It has power. It reveals things that in and of ourselves we could not understand. It points the way toward you. In it is exposed the way to salvation through Jesus Christ. And in this chapter in Ecclesiastes this morning, may we be reminded of our role that we have in, in your world. As all the busyness of the world goes on, and as we are busy ourselves, may we have our eyes drawn to things that are significant, mainly to you, to your goodness and your works, and the fact that what you do, do endures and you are good. We love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were in the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes. We're covering some of the same verses in chapter three that we touched on last week, but we'll just be focused here in chapter three. Um, and we discussed how uh, life from a human perspective is described at the beginning of Ecclesiastes as something that, that falls short of real meaning. He describes man's life as fleeting and the generations going around and around and all of our human achievements and all of our, our endeavors, those things that we pour all of our energy into seem to fall short of producing happiness or value or meaning. And the, the preacher, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, which was, seems to be Solomon, 
he speaks as someone who has the, the voice of experience in being someone who has chased all of those pursuits to see if they actually work out. And, he, and he's doing it intentionally to evaluate if maybe this thing will get me there. Maybe this thing will get me there. Maybe this thing will be significant. And as, as we discussed last week, he does it with his wisdom intact and his eyes open, and he's actually considering, is, does this make me happy? Does this appear to be valuable? He's not a distracted uh, hedonist who is just frittering his life away without paying attention. He's intentionally pursuing all these different avenues, work, pleasure, money, possessions. And as he gets to the top in all of those things, he considers and goes, did it work? Is it valuable? Is this meaningful? And he discerns at every one of those mountaintops that it's not it, that this is vanity of vanities. It's a breath that passes away. Everything under the sun appears to be vain. And we talked about last week how in contrast to those human endeavors that are fleeting, that God is seen in Ecclesiastes as one whose works are significant. In chapter 3, verse 14, which we just read, it says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. So all of our human endeavors are vanity of vanity under the sun. What do they work out to? But God's endeavors endure. They are sure. They are significant. They last they're weighty. And we ended last week by considering that there's a day of judgment will God, when God will appear, and he's going to interrupt this seemingly vain world, this seemingly vain rotation of the ages and the generations, and there's going to be a reckoning where he does judge the righteous and the wicked and their relationship with him during their lives. And we see that in those verses we just looked at as well. Or actually, I'm sorry, just a little bit down. Chapter 3, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So while all our human endeavors might seem like a rat race going round and round and round, in God's perspective, it's not. There's a beginning and there's an end when there will be a reckoning and we will stand before God and we'll see that his works endure the Apostle Paul, he looked toward that same day. Keep your finger here in Ecclesiastes and flip over to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that he's holding fast, or that believers are called to hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, there's that day of judgment, that point of reckoning. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And that should make your ears perk up a little bit. Hey, Paul's talking about vanity, and he looks at, he anticipates that same judgment day where he'll stand before God, and he's going, I want to endeavor that my life not be vain, and that my running not be vain. The beginning of Ecclesiastes is somewhat depressing with its talk of life as being vanity of vanities. And so Paul, when he says, wait, I'm running a life that I desire to not be vain, and he describes it as a life of running, like of exertion. He's putting himself into it. 
And he says, this life, I, I don't want it to be vain. And we should go, oh, we want to grab hold of that, right? We read Ecclesiastes and look at the rat race. We don't want that. We want a life that's not vain on that last day. And with that, turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple things that draw our minds to things that are eternal and significant in contrast to vanity. And again, we can't exhaust this theme. We can just take a few pointers this morning that point us toward significance and meaning in this seemingly vain life that we are in. Where you're born, you live, you die. And the next generation is born and lives and dies. God has to do something to make it significant. Two things this morning. We're going to look at God's good gifts. God's good gifts. And then we're going to consider those gifts as stewardships for eternity. Stewardships for eternity that are not vain. Ecclesiastes 3 points us to God's good gifts in a couple different ways. One of the the biggest in the passage we just read is God's gift of seasons. Different parts of your life where things are up and things are down. Seasons. And he describes those things as a gift of God that have significance. I want to I draw our minds to sort of a logical progression, all right? Uh, verses three, or chapter 3, verses 2 through 8, describes these different seasons of life. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck up what is planted. We could go on through that list, right? He describes these different seasons of life. In verse 14... He says that whatever God does endures forever. So here we have our seasons with its ups and downs, and we have what God does endures. And now I want you to flip over a few pages to chapter 7, verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, And in the day of adversity, consider, so there's two different seasons, a season of joy and a season of adversity. And he says that God has made the one as well as the other. So there's these seasons, everything that God does endures, and God is the one who made the seasons, which means that they have enduring significance, right? They have to be. If those seasons come from God, then they have enduring significance from God's perspective. We don't see the end and the beginning of all of our seasons, but God does, and he has intentionality. From under the sun, those seasons may look meaningless. They may look vain, and yet God is doing something in them that is enduring. Still in chapter 7, look at the two seasons he describes here in verse 14. There's a day of prosperity, so there's, uh, that's a a good season. We all like those, right? The days of prosperity. What are you supposed to do in the day of prosperity? Be joyful. Be glad that you have a season of, of prosperity, of goodness in your life. And the next day, in the day of adversity, what are you supposed to do in the day of adversity? Think about it. 
That's what you're supposed to do. On the day of adversity, you're supposed to consider something, and what you're supposed to consider is, you know what? This day is from God just like that other day was. That should be encouraging, right? God made the one season as well as one season as well as the other. He made the day of prosperity. He made the day of adversity. One, it's good to be joyful in the day of of prosperity. You don't have to feel bad that you're having a a good season in your life. And in the day of adversity, consider that both of these are equally from God. Every day, from God's perspective, whether it's joyful or whether it's difficult, is crafted by the Lord. Job had that mindset in Job chapter 2. You may remember after he lost everything, the building fell down and killed his kids. And all of his possessions were, were robbed by invaders. And Job's wife says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Throw in the towel. This is a day of adversity. God has failed. Curse him and give up on life. Just die. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women should speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And the idea is from God? Didn't he bring the one day as well as the other? And are you going to sit there on the joyful day and go, God, wow, thank you for giving this to me. And then on the bad day go, I hate God for what he has done. He gave both of them. You can't take from one hand and not take from the other. And in all of that, Job did not sin with his lips. The scripture teaches us that a bad day or a bad season is just as purposeful from God's perspective, maybe more. It is just as much a gift from him for his purposes as the day of joy is. They both come from his hand. And we scramble around our lives and we can't perceive it all. It looks vain and fleeting and passing away. But from God's perspective, it's on purpose. The bad day is just as purposeful as the good one, maybe even more. Here's here's the difference. Who is making it meaningful? In the beginning of Ecclesiastes, as the preacher is clawing his way toward meaning, it's him. He's trying to make it meaningful. And you can't scratch meaning out of something that God didn't intend to be your ultimate source of worth. You're not supposed to find your ultimate fulfillment in all of your possessions. You're not supposed to find your fulfillment in this joyful season. You're not supposed to find your fulfillment when your family is going well. You can't scratch meaning out of it, but you can receive it as a good gift when you have a good season, as from the Lord, as something that endures because it's from Him. We can receive them as good. We can receive the days of suffering from him as days that are from him that he has purposes for. God is the one who does things that endure, and he's the one who makes the joyful and the suffering seasons meaningful. He does it. He injects and fills them with eternal significance. That should bring us a lot of contentment as we go through those, those waves of life, the 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 crests and the troughs of the highs and the lows. Uh, That should bring us a lot of contentment. That should cause us to trust him. The implication is we'll have to trust him on the hard ones. That's when it's harder to trust him. The good days, it's, it's harder to remember that it's from him and give thanks. 
They both come with their temptations. Uh, the fact that both of these seasons, the, the good and the bad seasons, are from the hand of the Lord, um, that, that can actually help us in dealing with joy and with sorrow uh, authentically. We don't have to uh, paste on an attitude that should fit some other season. When we, we don't have to paste on joy when we're in a season of suffering. We don't have to uh, be inauthentically woeful on days that are good. We can, we can rejoice and sorrow with authenticity because they both come from God. We're called to do both those things. We're called to rejoice and we're called to weep. Uh, Romans 12 tells us to do that, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. The day of rejoicing is from God and the day of sorrow of weeping is from God. We can do both of those things authentically because we're not trying to produce all the meaning. We're receiving these things as a gift from God as part of his purposes. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says that the members of the body of, of Christ's church are to care for one another. And it says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So God's sovereignty over the two kinds of days mean that we can reap uh, that we can weep and rejoice ourselves and we can weep and rejoice with others, with authenticity, because we're not trying to conjure up the meaning. We're not trying to produce the purpose. It's from the Lord. Uh, when it comes to sorrow, there's no doubt that we will sometimes see others suffering on days when we're fine. We're having a season of joy, and there's someone who's in a season of sorrow. And we can walk along aside them in their sorrow and take a little bit of their sorrow on ourselves because we've been equipped to do that. We have the strength in that moment from the Lord to be grace in their lives and to sorrow with them, even though we are in a season of joy. Um, there will be times when we will feel great sorrow on days when other people are blessed. And what's the temptation there? Well, our temptation would be bitter on those days, Right? I don't like that they are rejoicing when I am feeling sorrowful. But that's for forgetting that both of those things came from God according to his good pleasure. And so the fact that those seasons come from his hand means that we can be free from bitterness over someone else's blessings. At that moment, it's a time to weep and a time to mourn for, for us and maybe not for them. When it comes to joy, we can rejoice in God's blessings with freedom. Uh, Pastor Matt kind of touched on this in Sunday school a little bit. If God blesses you with a 2023 Toyota Tundra, <laughs> that's okay. You can receive it as a blessing. You don't have to drive around feeling guilty that God provided this for you. Uh, he was talking about how we don't want to pray for things that are just for our own self-satisfaction. But if something comes as a gift of God, you don't have to be, be ashamed of it. It's a blessing from his hand. You can receive it with thanksgiving. It's okay to dance at a wedding even if there's a war on the other side of the world. That's what God has given you at this point. It's a time to, to dance. Uh, here's something that touches close to home and needs God's grace. Uh, you can rejoice at a baby shower, even if some friend you know or even yourself 
is suffering because of some, of some loss or something that you don't, don't get to have at that time. It's a, it's a time to laugh. It's a time to be joyful for some blessing that he gave. Uh, the, God actually equips us to be able to carry joy and sorrow sometimes at the same time. Paul describes himself as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There were things that were heavy and there were things that were, were light. And both of them came from God's hands. Here's something else to remember, is that as we try to handle joy and sorrow, um, because we're human beings, we're going to bungle it. We're going to have situations where, where I could have wept better with someone who was weeping, or I could have rejoiced better with someone who was rejoicing, or there's times when I might fail to recognize that they are weeping or, or that they are rejoicing. I'm not even sensitive. I don't even have my eyes open at that moment. There's going to be times people don't observe uh, my seasons. They, they, they come across harsh on a day when harshness is not what I needed today. <laughs> they might rub some salt in some wound that they didn't intend to do. Um, and in those seasons, we can learn from that and go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to glean a something for me to learn so that I don't treat someone else that way. Um, but regardless of how we handle those seasons with one another and how forgetful and, and how short we may fall in handling those seasons, who knows? God knows. He knows the season, right? He didn't forget he isn't handling it harshly. Uh, it was his gift. It was from his hand, and his gifts are good. They are hard, and they're difficult, but they are good gifts. And Luke 11 tells us, reminds us of the love of God toward us, uh, when Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? No loving father would do that. If a son asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our Heavenly Father is good. He knows exactly uh, what we need. He gives the gifts that we need. He's not stingy with his love toward us. He's not holding it back and only doling it out a little bit at a time based on how well we're doing. He, he lavishes on, on us, even though we don't actually deserve it at all. He's kindly disposed toward us. If we're his children, we're his children. We know how to treat our own children like, I should love this kid, even though he's making me pull my hair out. We, we know that. <laughs> The fact that he's making me pull my hair out doesn't mean that I don't love him anymore. I, I, still, I still love him. And God is that way for us, except far more, right? We're, we're weak little failures when it comes to, to loving well. Uh, and God just does it infinitely and out of abundance. No human being is going to love us as well as God already does. So those seasons are from his hand. Let's read through those seasons uh, again really quick, just from verse chapter 3, verse 2 and downward. There's a time to be born and a time to die, 
a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. All those things are his gifts that he makes beautiful. We'll see that in a minute. There's something else that God reveals here as something that is meaningful as we do it before the Lord, and that is work. In chapter 1, verse 3, he asks this question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And as he's trying to break out of this cycle of vanity and produce something that's meaningful, one of the avenues that the preacher tries is work. He tries all of these achievements. In chapter 2, he tries uh, producing meaning through effort. He builds things. He plants things. He ranches things. He enjoys doing it. And yet it says in chapter 2, verse 11, that he stands back and he looks at all those things that he had done. And 2.11 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There's nothing to be gained under the sun if it's just human effort if God is not in it. I would remind you that although there's nothing to be gained under the sun by human effort, that there is something to be gained in a world over the sun where moth and, corrupt, moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. There is such a thing as working for something that's above the sun instead of just the, under it. There's, some, there's a way of working for something that is eternal, not just something that will pass away. And work is one of those gifts that God gives to us that is intended to be meaningful. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 9, he asks that question again. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. When he looks toward work, as something meaningful, instead of the rat race, but as something meaningful, look in these verses. Who is active in these verses? Where did the work come from? God has given it in verse 10. Who makes things actually valuable? God is the one who makes everything beautiful. Who's the one who sees the end from the beginning? There at the end of verse 11, God has done it. He sees from the, the beginning to the end. 
verse 13, of taking pleasure in your, in your work. Where does that come from? It's God's gift to man. Again, this isn't man trying to claw his way up. This is man just receiving something as a good gift and going, thank you, Lord. This is something I'm supposed to be productive with. Work is a gift of the Lord, just like the seasons are a gift from the Lord. And he's talking here literally of of menial work, like the stuff we do with our bodies and our brains when we're being productive. Meaningful work uh, began in the Garden of Eden. In in Genesis chapter 1, God tells Adam to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. And then in chapter 2, he puts the man in the garden and says, take care of the garden. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work was pre-fall. It was before sin came into the world. Uh, You don't, when you clock in in the morning, you can't say, thanks a lot, Adam, for messing everything up. Good thing it's Friday. We've dealt with Adam's curse for the last five days. That's not the way it works. Work is pre-fall. It's intended for our good, and we're intended to be productive. The curse, uh, the, the, the work doesn't exist because of the curse. It's just hard because of the curse. And also, we're lazy because of the curse. <laughs> Work is a gift. And it doesn't have to be work that makes you sweat, although it might be. Physical labor, digging a ditch is, is honorable work. Working in the office is honorable work or in a lab or at, an, at a doctor's office or at your home. Uh, the, the key is, is that our members, our, our physical being, exists to be productive. We are here to put this into motion and to work. We're to put our energy into things that are useful. God wants us to be busy. He says that in Ecclesiastes 3.10. Man's busy, it says, those words. He's given it to the children of man to be busy. And what God has commanded should uh, challenge and encourage us to do it. We come up with all sorts of excuses why not to work. Um, Our society provides all sorts of ways where you can pretend to live a life that is useful even though you're not. And it becomes an excuse or a crutch that keeps you from working. But when you're doing that, you're doing two things. You're disobeying God because he tells us to work. You're also depriving yourself of, of the gift of productivity that God has given you. You're just taking this huge thing that God has given you to be a blessing. In our society, it's this 40-hour-a-week blessing plus all the extra stuff we do too, but you get my, my point. This, this giant, significant part of our lives, I spend more time at work than I do with my children. That's a significant chunk of my life. And it's intended for their good and God's glory, and that's okay that it's out of balance or whatever. That's okay. But it's a gift, and it can be used for God, or it might not be. I once knew a man um, at the camp in California where I grew up. This fellow came to a men's retreat once a year, and he was a quadriplegic. I don't remember if it was, a, if it was an accident. or what. I don't remember why he was a, a quadriplegic, but he, he, he'd come to camp, and he was in his motorized wheelchair, and he, he, uh, he could barely speak. He would sort of have these, these grunts and moans, and if the people who knew him could kind of translate for him a little bit. 
Uh, he was severely disabled. I mean, if anybody should uh, had an excuse not to work, he did. <laughs> I can't do anything. Um, but he worked. Uh, as I recall, he worked for the military or was contracted with the military. And he sat in his wheelchair and he programmed computers by bumping his head against the sides of his headrest. He was being productive. And no doubt that was a blessing to him. That was God's gift that he didn't sit there and waste away, but he could be useful. He had that amount of ability and probably a brain that could whip any of us <laughs> in a body that didn't function well. And he could be productive. His ability was a gift and it was honorable for him to work in menial ways. Of course, along with that, is our spiritual labors, and that would be reaching the lost, which hopefully is incorporated together with our menial work. We can't draw a stark line behind them. I'm doing my job here, and I'm serving God over here. We don't, we don't want to do that. But just by way of perspective, we do serve in our spiritual work of sharing the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's a really interesting verse. Eternity in man's heart, it says. And what that appears to mean is that every human being has this sense of scale or of significance or this yearning for significance, this this gut feeling that there's something more, there's something bigger that we can't quite hang on to. Somehow we know that we're eternal beings and we're meant for something more than just a meaningless grind. But what's he say? Although we have that eternity in our hearts, we fall short. He has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have this sense of something big and long and lasting and enduring and outside of ourselves. And it's, it's there and uh, there's got to be something more. And yet we cannot see the beginning and we can't see the end and we can't wrap it all up in our minds and put a bow on it that I have understood eternity. I know what all the big plans are for this whole, this whole thing. But God does, right? We cannot see what God has done from the beginning to the end. We're just this little microcosm, this little blip in the whole thing. And we can't grasp it all. And so think about that. If, if we are limited in our understanding, if you're a, a private in the military and you're in this massive humanity that you're supposed, there's a country out there that you're supposed to conquer, you can't take it all in. You don't know how this brigade coming up this way is, ma- is corresponding to this brigade coming over this way. Only the, uh, only the higher-ups know what's actually going up. You're just the little private, and you're, you got your gun, and you're supposed to, he tells you to go that way. And you have this one little sense of duty, of responsibility that you're supposed to fulfill in, in the master plan that you can't grasp. Uh, Look at, at Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. God intends that others know him. 
He wants people to fear the Lord. And if you're a, 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 a private in this army to accomplish this mission, then you're just supposed to do what is within your sphere of your life to accomplish the commission. And the Christian commission is to teach and to make disciples of, of all nations. No one of us is going to teach and make disciples of all the nations by ourselves. No one can accomplish the mission. You're just responsible for your sphere of influence to preach and to proclaim the gospel and to labor that others might know God. You are called to work in that spiritual sense of making disciples. One other sense in which God gives us meaning, and that is in serving one another. Chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Be joyful and do good as long as you live. Those good works that we are called to do. Everywhere in Scripture, true doctrine, the things that we believe, corresponds with good works. These are two vital markers of God's people. We are called to be people who believe the right things about God and who produce good works that glorify God. It's God's mission, it's his purpose that we are people who are rightly aligned with him and as as we are aligned with him, as we are are righteous before him, that we do good works. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Familiar passage here in Titus chapter 2. Verse 13 and following. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Incidentally, in that verse, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, refers to the same person, okay? Jesus is God. Side note, but an important one. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So there's salvation. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Uh, Ponder that for a moment and think about the fact that we're thinking about how God gives us good gifts. And this verse reminds us that that our ability to to, to do any good works that please God is his gift to us. There's two things in the passage that are a gift. He gave himself for us. So, well, three, really, if we think about Jesus as a person giving himself for us. But that, per- that, that purchase price of Jesus Christ was intended to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness, to give us that freedom from our sin. That's a gift. We do not earn it, right? And why did he give himself? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The fact we can work and please God is a gift from him. Our redemption from lawlessness was a gift purchased at the cost of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And any zeal that we have to please him in our behavior is a gift purchased at the cost of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Before you can be zealous for good works, you have to be purchased from lawlessness. 
And if you sit here this morning and you're still in bondage to lawlessness, then, then you haven't got to square one on, on doing good works that please God. All of your good works are going to fall short. They're going to they're gonna stand against you on judgment day as works that were just performed for your own aims. But this passage tells us that, that although you may be in bondage to lawlessness, that Jesus Christ has given himself to free you from it. And that that's received as a gift. It's received by faith. Jesus Christ died and he rose again to accomplish our freedom from sin. So believe that if you are not free. Trust in him for that redemption. And likewise, he died so that we may be zealous to perform good works. It's a really big deal to God. He, he died to make it happen. Jesus died to make this happen. Back in Ecclesiastes 3. I realize that we have not got to point two, but it is on my paper that way. Point two is actually word count shorter. Though we're, we're getting there. Something else that's God's gift in chapter 3, verse 11 and following, and that is beauty and joy as God's gifts. We've already talked about this a little bit. I'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11 and following. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 11 tells us that he's made everything beautiful in his time. And that reflects back to those seasons that we talked about, that verses 2 through 8 cover. He makes those things beautiful in their time. Um, but as we look at that list of seasons, we can see things in that list, excuse me, that are aesthetic, uh, beautiful, or experiential joys. Look in the list. There are things in here that are just wholly positive um, and, and good and beautiful all by themselves. Uh, pleasurable things. And it's good to enjoy those things. There's birth and planting and healing and building and laughing and dancing and embracing and working and, uh, and speech and love, and peace. All those things that are things that God makes beautiful in their time. And so those things are good gifts. Though, since they are gifts from God, we can enjoy them as what God intended them to be. They're gifts. They are not God. You won't achieve meaning by chasing them, but they're good gifts. We have to keep them in their proper place, but we can also delight in them. And there are two things that I think help us keep them in their proper place here in Ecclesiastes. One is that they are from God. So just the fact they are gifts from him, is, it points us in the right direction because now we recognize this isn't self-achievement, piling up these pleasures all by myself. This is just receiving something from the Lord. 
And the other thing is that they are not God. The first couple chapters of Ecclesiastes remind us that if you're chasing those things as God, it works out to nothing. You're chasing joy in something that wasn't intended to give you ultimate joy. The preacher tried everything. Will this fulfill? And he says, no. And yet, those, many of those same pleasures in their place, in their proper role with the right perspective that they're gifts and not God, then they're delightful and it's lawful for us to enjoy them. Uh, sometimes believers will fall off the, the, fall off the ditch uh, uh, with receiving God's gifts and actually delighting in them. Um, some people will feel like the more that they beat themselves up and live a difficult life on purpose, the more pleasing they are to God. No, just take his good gifts. Be happy about them. Look, here, God gives you something. Oh, no. <sighs> now I'm a bad, bully, a bad Christian. It's just a good gift. Take it. It's okay to sit down on Thanksgiving and eat a lot. I go, thank you, Lord, for this good gift. Just don't do it all the time because food is a terrible God. Uh, some Christians would be ha some Christians are glum and woebegone because they just can't be happy about the good gifts that God gives them. Like, just be thankful. Have you ever given a gift to someone at a birthday who, who's bad at, at giving thanks? And you're like, wow, I'm, I'm really glad I gave it to you because you're really thrilled to have it. <laughs> Receive his good gifts as gifts. They're good pleasures. With the right perspective, they are lawful to enjoy. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink, find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For, for, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Number two, point two, we want to receive all of those gifts as stewardships for eternity. There's eternal value to be found in those gifts that he gives. And this comes not so much from Ecclesiastes all by itself, uh, but by considering some of these principles in the, in the broader context of the whole word of God. And that is, is that our lives and the things that he gives us can be received in such a way that we use our lives and all of our good gifts in a way that has eternal significance. There was a man in the 1700s, his name was Nicholas Zinzendorf, Count von Zinzendorf. He was a German bishop. He instigated a missions movement in, in Germany in the in the 1700s. He's famous for his hymns. We sing uh, some of his hymns in, in church here. Um, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress, is one of his, his songs that he wrote that we sing here. Um, he was a wealthy man. He had a lot of God's gifts. He said this short quote. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> he's kindred spirits with the preacher in ways. He's kindred spirits with the author of Ecclesiastes. Live your life, go in the grave, and if you're forgotten, it doesn't matter if you were doing what God wanted you to be doing while you were here, primarily preaching the gospel. 
preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Uh, Zinzendorf, he doesn't appear from that quote to care if his life appeared to be vain. He would probably be baffled that we still remember him <laughs> 300 years later. Uh, he doesn't appear to care if he had an enduring legacy and if there's a Count von Zinzendorf XVI who still has all of his possessions. Uh, he was a wealthy man. He enjoyed many of God's good gifts. He no doubt enjoyed plenty of nice meals and a fine uh, house and times when his lifestyle was really, really comfortable. Uh, but he didn't have to produce a legacy with all of those things that God had given him. That would be giving more significance to those things than they're intended for. But what he did know is that serving the Lord was eternally significant. What God does endures. God calls us to remember things that aren't a vapor. He calls us to invest in things that are eternal. It's things that are going to stand up when we stand before God. Uh, he's the one who declares us righteous in Christ by faith. And what he does endures. If he's counted you righteous, you are and you will be. Uh, he's the one who empowers us and charges us to be zealous for good works. And he empowers us to do good works by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who has all authority so that when we preach the gospel to every creature, it is, it is his work in this world. We proclaim a saving gospel. And so we are just like faithful stewards. We're like ones who are under a master, and it's like that master has gone on a journey, and he's left us some things behind. And some, some of us have more things than, than others do, but that doesn't mas matter. If, you, if one has more and you're the guy who has less, and we all feel that way, right? <laughs> That's okay, because it came from the master to start with. It doesn't matter if you have five stewards or one, you're just supposed to be faithful with it until that master on the journey comes back again. He's the one who will consider whether it was useful. God is the one who produces the increase. Zinzendorf, when he says, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten, he sounds a lot like Paul did in Philippians 2 where we began. Go back there as we close. Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 <clears throat> Philippians 2:16 holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is doing he is he is the contrast to that vanity of vanities. He's running in a way that is not vain. He's laboring not in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. What's a drink offering? A drink offering is an expendable offering. It's a liquid. God, this is to honor you. Psh, gone. Well, that seems insignificant. That seems meaningless. No, it was worship to God. That's significant. 
And Paul looks at his whole life and all of his labor and his journeying around and around and being shipwrecked in the whole nine yards. And he looks at that and goes, if my whole life is just poured out as a drink offering, psh, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, if my life strengthens the faith of believers, great, I can die and be forgotten. And he goes, I'm glad and rejoice, and you should too. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's life was poured out. It was a brief life, here and gone. But it was for the faith of the Philippians, and that made it worth it. So when we see things as from God, as his good gifts, then we can see God's grace in our lives that, that is part of God's work, and that what he does endures forever. The thing about the fruitful, meaningful life that the preacher was trying to get by himself, the thing is, is the fruitful, meaningful life, it is there, but it's not made by you scrambling to the top of the heap. The meaningful life is God's gift. It's from him. He does it. And we should receive it that way with joy, with gladness, with rejoicing. Let's pray. Our God, we desire to have our delights aimed in that direction to uh, rejoice in what you do on our behalf and not just what we can initiate, produce all by ourselves. So much of the world does that, Lord. May we pursue higher things by, by your power, by your grace, motivated by the fact that you've given your very son to make us your children. Lord, as we go about our week, in our week is many of the good gifts we just talked about. Some of those good gifts will be good days. Some of those good gifts will be sorrowful ones. We do not know what lies ahead. For most of us, we will have the gift of working, of laboring. We'll have the opportunity to preach your gospel. We'll have the opportunity to enjoy some of the pleasures of life. Uh, no matter what they may be, may we receive them as what they are, gifts from yours, and give you thanks and be found faithful in them. In Jesus' name, amen.